from the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio. This is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. Welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining us. This podcast will navigate the problems that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences as underrepresented professionals in the music industry. Our guest today is a beloved figure here in the Canton community. Gerhard Zimmerman has served as music director of the Canton Symphony Orchestra for 40 years. Prior to coming to Canton, he was assistant conductor of the St. Louis Symphony. Concurrently with his time here, he served as music director of the North Carolina Symphony in Raleigh for over 20 years and still makes his home there. He was also director of orchestras and professor of conducting at the Butler School of Music at the University of Texas at Austin. Gerhard Zimmerman, welcome to Orchestrating Change. Thank you very, very much. It's good to be here. So let's start off with a great question from one conductor to another. Yes. What made you want to become a conductor? Uh, I never wanted to be a conductor. <laughs> I never really wanted to be in, in music. I always wanted to be the second baseman for the Cincinnati Reds. Well, as a native Cincinnatian who is a lifelong Reds fan, that positively warms my heart. Well, that's, that's, that's good. I was uh, a kind of a baseball freak. Uh, and then I had polio when I was seven, being a stubborn Ohioan and uh, most, mostly German heritage. I thought that I could overcome the entire thing. The doctor said that I would never walk again. I was paralyzed from the neck down, and I didn't care for that very much. So I worked, I mean, it, it was a struggle at first. I came home after 11 weeks in the hospital with two full-length braces and two crutches, and a corset to keep my spine straight, or as straight as it could be. So was there like a specific thing after you had polio that made you want to go into music or was that just another well, thing like, of well, you? Well, I can't, I can't, I'm not going to be able to go into sports. Mm. I won't be able to, even as an educator, teach phys ed. Mm -hmm. So might as well go into music. I'm pretty good at that. <laughs> Logical. So uh, when I, early high school and everything, I wanted to be uh, a junior high and elementary school band director. Couldn't do high school because they, you, you had to do a lot of marching band. Mm. And there are not many pieces written in 5-8 that I could teach the band to march to. <laughs> <laughs> um, um. I, I remember my father, all in my junior high, in my high school I was on my own. But he would take me to the, the football game. And we lived three houses from, from the stadium. And uh, we would arrive maybe in the middle of the second quarter. We'd watch the band perform, and then we'd watch the third quarter, and then we would go home. <laughs> but it was always, always exciting to me, the, the drum cadences particularly, mm -hmm. and when the band would, would, would come on the field and the band would go off the field. Mm. It was, uh, I, th I think that, that's what really got me interested in, me, in music. Mm. So ultimately, you did defy the doctor's predictions. You did walk again, and moreover, yes. you regained the use of your arms, which would allow you yes. to be a conductor. So you had this dream of being a junior high school band director, and I know you have told me before, you got to college and you heard the sound of the orchestra for the first time, oh, and yeah. it was I've an experience an for yeah. you. I never heard an orchestra live until I sat in one. Mm. My trumpet instructor said, you know, I want you to try out for the orchestra. Van Wert, Ohio didn't have an orchestra. I didn't know what an orchestra sounded like, so I, so I auditioned. And Harry Kruger, the conductor, accepted me. I was the second trumpet. And the first rehearsal was Wagner, the Meistersinger Prelude, and Dvorak Symphony Number no. 8. You know, the one with the, uh, the fanfare at the beginning of the last movement. 
And I'm telling you that, that you, you've heard that, uh, the old expression that the heavens just opened. That's what happened to me. Mm. It was like I graduated from a 16 crayon, uh, crayon box <laughs> to a 48 crayon box with all of the colors of the strings matched with the woodwinds and the and the brass and the percussion mm. it, it was wonderful and from that evening on i wanted to conduct an mm. orchestra so you had that experience your heavens opening up experience your undergraduate teacher was extremely supportive of this yes you eventually yes. got your graduate degree i know at the university of iowa Yes. And ultimately landed in St. Louis as assistant conductor before coming here. In a lot of ways, my career has been, I've been really fortunate. Mm. You know, when you first start out, and, and my background is, uh, I never heard an orchestra live until I got to college. Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't trained in, in, the, in the classics. Um, so the background is not like most symphonic conductors. So... You had polio. Yes. After you recovered and regained the use of your limbs, have, has it ever in any way held you back in your career or have you ever faced any sort of discrimination whatsoever in the profession as a result of it? Discrimination, yes. I entered the Georg Schulte conducting competition. It was the first and last one. Apparently, they got a hold of me, and I ruined it for everyone. Anyway, first part of the competition was um, conducting two pianos. Second part, uh, we were invited, uh, the, the top six were invited back uh, to conduct the Chicago Civic. And at the time when Schulte whittled us down from six to the final three, he went around to each conductor, and he said, now I will give you only negative things here in Chicago. <laughs> I love the way he talked. <laughs> so he went around, he told one conductor that, um, that his audition was disaster, <laughs> disaster. And I didn't think it was a disaster. I thought he followed Schulte's interpretation to the T. <laughs> so, you know. I don't know about that, but when he got to me, he said, you know, it's unfortunate that you're a conductor. And I mean, the room went silent. And I, you know, with my personality, I kind of leaned up, you know, <laughs> ready to go to war. And he said, because you don't get enough power out of the orchestra. I had no idea what that meant, per se. I mean... The last piece I conducted was the first movement of La Mer. The first movement of La Mer shouldn't sound like a Mahler symphony, mm. okay, with the chorale. Um, so I made it to the top three. So uh, one year later, it ended up where I tied for second place. Uh, one year later, Gordon Peters, who was Schulte's assistant with the Civic Orchestra and conductor of the Civic Orchestra, the training orchestra, invited me to conduct a concert with the Civic. He took me out to lunch and I said, Gordon, um, what, what did Schulte mean exactly when he said this? And he said, well, you know, I talked in, in length with Margaret Hillis, the, the, the long time marvelous choral director of the Chicago Symphony Chorus. And we think that the reason he said it was he didn't think that I, I would have the stamina to be a conductor. Mm. And, you know, I can be a little stubborn at times. And I said, well, Gordon, will you, will you give Mr. Schulte a message? Yes. I said, would you just tell him that last week I did six rehearsals and four concerts with two different orchestras and i'm still alive <laughs> and he looked at me and his eyes got big you know but i don't know if he told him or not so anyway yes that that's one instance another instance when i auditioned for north carolina symphony we had three rehearsals and i believe it was two concerts two runouts 
And uh, when the board and the musicians and the staff got together to, to decide who they wanted as their music director, a couple of board members brought up the fact, well, I mean, is he, is he well enough? You know, I mean, he wears a brace and he limps and everything. Jimmy Gilmore was the principal clarinetist at that time. And the head of the orchestra committee said, well, for Pete's sakes, he stood for all the rehearsals and the concerts. What else more do you want? <laughs> Which I thought was a good good reply. So, but yes, I mean, I, I have run into it. And I'm sure that there have been instances that I don't know of. Mm -hmm. We have here in the orchestral world a canon that is very much based in 18th and 19th century European music. But as we know, there is so much incredible music out there outside of this canon. Really? And <laughs> well, at some places you would never know it. Fortunately, here at the Canton Symphony, that is this is not one of those places. But why do you think audiences are so reluctant to try new music that maybe a composer or piece they haven't heard of? And why is this museum aspect of the orchestra world, the performance of the classics, so much outweighed against the gallery aspect, the curation of new works for performance for the audience? Okay, there's, uh, there's several factors in that. One, there's, there's always the complaint that the audience is, is getting older. Well, when you have both parents working and needing to work because of the economy, and they're both juggling soccer, little league baseball, church activities, when they go home, they're tired. They're, they're, they're exhausted. Number two, it's the, the age-old thing of uh, familiarity. You like what you're familiar with. Oh, I haven't heard that before. It can't be good. And this, this really, really does, does exist. Um, got in trouble in North Carolina towards the end of my tenure there where uh, two very influential money people of the, of the board went to the board chairman and wanted him to pass a rule where I couldn't program 20th century anymore. You know, the board chairman talked to me about it. Executive director talked to me about it. I said, not, not, not while I'm at music. Not while I'm here. That's not going to happen. Mm. And I keep saying over and over, you cannot ensure and protect the music of the past unless you enable the music of the future. Mm-hmm. And I believe that with every ounce of blood in my body. Mm -hmm. and it, well, I was going to say it's wonderful because um, we've had lots of uh, composer fellowships happen here at the Canton Symphony. We, we, you know, we were just discussing with our composer fellow of this year her piece that she's been working on, and um, I, you know, it's evident to me how much you care about new music, um, but you do it in such a way that I feel the audience learns about the piece instead of just listens to it so that they can have a deeper understanding about the music that we're listening to and hopefully grow to put it in their own canon. And there's a lot of, you know, premieres that happen here at the Canton Symphony, which I really value. So how do you think music directors could do a better job of not only programming new music, but also diversifying older music? playing music uh, from the 20th century and the 19th century by, you know, composers of color or people not from the canon. How do you think music directors can do a better job of they ha this? They have, they, they have to program it and they have <laughs> to believe in themselves and have faith in themselves or herself to put it on the program. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a fight with, a music director fights with the staff too. It's unbelievable. Now, not not this one, because they know which 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 road I'm going down. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I wish we could do an all 
modern, meaning a living composer concert once a year. I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with familiarity. Mm -hmm. Also, when you go to a, a, a modern art museum, okay, mm -hmm. you can leave any time. Mm. When you go to a book reading or a poetry reading, you can, it's a little embarrassing to leave, but if you sit on the outside, it's fine. There's only about 25, 30 people there. When you go to a symphony orchestra concert and you're, you're sitting right in the middle <laughs> of 800 to 1,300 people, you're, you're trapped. You are trapped. And when they don't like some Bartok, audiences have a very, most audiences have a very negative reaction to Bartok. Mm. Um, I remember doing uh, Miraculous Mandarin. It's a piece I love. I hope to do it one more time, the suite, and uh, before I retire. I did it in Canton, the suite. The letters I got, this is before email had appeared. The letters I got, I mean, were like reading Twitter. One lady wrote me a poem and said how disappointed she was. Not disappointed, disgusted mm. that I programmed that. Now, the next concert, I happened to conduct Brahms One, Symphony Number no. One. She wrote me another poem saying that I was forgiven. I, I think it is because bar talk is so intense. I think that's what bothers people. Also bothers people, a, a good number of people, that they are forced um, to join in with their emotions. Let's say a Mahler symphony. They, they, can't, they can't handle that. You know, I don't know if it's true nowadays, but when I was growing up, men didn't cry. You weren't mm. supposed to cry. Women shouldn't either, but men, really. You weren't a man if you cried. Well, what kind of nonsense is that? What kind of nonsense? Mm. Don't you cry when, you, when, when your firstborn is, is, comes around? Or when your daughter graduates uh, from college or med school? I mean, I, do, I don't understand this, this mentality that you should... I tell my orchestras or the orchestras that I conduct, I, I, I encourage them to move. Because there's this school going around. It's been going around for 20, 30 years, maybe longer. Man, when you play, except solos now, but when you're in an orchestra, you just, you just play. You don't move. Have you ever seen the, the, you know, the woodwinds and the front stands, the strings and the Vienna fill, the Berlin fill? Those guys are moving. <laughs> they are communicating. But the, the, the movement, well, I, I don't understand why people, why the music doesn't go through the entire body. Mm. Let's put it that way. I think that, I mean, it's super interesting that you bring up movement, especially given, I, I, I feel like maybe that has something to do with you having polio as a child. And I feel like you have this unique perspective on exuberance and it comes through in your conducting and it comes through in your orchestras. Do you think that that's accurate? Yes. I mean, well, Thank you for saying that. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to agree with you. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yes. I when 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 I'm on the podium, I I mean I I get into it, and some orchestras I've con a guest conducted <laughs> that doesn't go over very well. I mean, North North Carolina, I have a great relationship with Canton. I think I have a good great relationship with with the with the musicians. They they always try, and ninety five percent of the time they come through on what I ask them to do. And when I remember that that 64 crayon box versus the 32 crayon box, and I work on sound with them, it makes all the difference in the world. Mm -hmm. Now, why do many, well, that might be an exaggeration, why do some orchestra string players play orchestral music 
differently than they would their concerto. Hmm. Ask him. Notes is notes. Music is music. I mean, you play a Christmas Overture by Leroy Anderson with the, with the, with the same amount of, of verve that you do a Beethoven symphony. I, music is music. Mm -hmm. So engaging with uh, communities, you know, finding your target audience and who you want to engage. In a community like Canton, um, we do have a primarily older demographic in our audience that is very typical for m m I would say all American orchestras, mm -hmm. but our community doesn't necessarily reflect that. So what are ways in which we can try to make orchestral music more accessible to more groups of people, pe uh, uh, minority populations, people who maybe are busy and working, younger people, you know, just expand the audience so that music really truly can just be music. You have, you have to invite them to I think rehearsals because mm. I think rehearsals are really exciting mm -hmm. and they get caught up in that. Mm -hmm. And I think you, you have to get them on stage during the rehearsal mm. so they can feel that, that energy, the synergy between the orchestra and, ho and hopefully the conductor. Mm. That's, that's how you do that. Or, or you do a special programming where let's say it's um, um, a, a Mexican composers, Mm -hmm. You have to find out, do your homework, who the most influential people are. You invite them to a rehearsal and you have a greeting or a get together after the rehearsal. Mm -hmm. If that means starting the rehearsal an hour earlier, that's what you need to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I, I always, I love that, you know, because there feels oftentimes that there is this unforeseen and actually visible barrier between an orchestra and the audience simply because of a stage. And so to break down that barrier and to literally invite people on stage, I think is just a wonderful way to really get people. I mean, it, you know, going back to how you first got into orchestra, it was, you were sitting in an orchestra for the first time. Yes, That's how you got into orchestra. Um, so the m best, you know, replicating an experience like that, um, can be really i really um i really like that i think that's a wonderful a wonderful thing to do absolutely mm -hmm. it's one one-on-one -on -one contact is the best to have mm -hmm. board members invite their friends hopefully yeah, somehow somehow our board members are going to have to connect with the younger people they know mm -hmm. and either invite them pay for the tickets mm -hmm. threaten them <laughs> <laughs> or whatever it takes okay <laughs> come it, to the orchestra that's why i talk before um not only new music but i also talk before beethoven nine mm -hmm. i had a colleague once that said well the third movement's the only movement worth conducting <laughs> and i'm thinking wow what what do we miss here uh, <laughs> well, because I don't feel that way at all. I mean, there, there is a big message there, and it starts with the opening of the first movement. Mm -hmm. When I talk to an audience, I don't want to be the type that says, well, the theme begins with the celli. Okay. Then it goes to the violas. Then, Lord forbid, then the piccolos take over. <laughs> um, I, I want, when I talk to an audience, I want, to tell them why this work is great, why it's so important for me to conduct it and the orchestra to play it, mm -hmm. and what it means emotionally. Mm -hmm. I like works, I love works that, that have something to say, mm -hmm. you know, that grab, grabs you by the gut. Mm -hmm. That's why I love Shostakovich so much. Mm -hmm. There's so much there. Yeah. And over the years, the Canton audiences have come, not, maybe not to love Shostakovich, but they've come to respect it and enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Okay? I, I think. Bartok. Uh, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> maybe the next, next millennium. Yes. <laughs> so do you think you're alluding to the... Mex inviting pr programming a piece by a Mexican composer 
and inviting people from that community. Yes, and it would also be good to invite the, the composer too. Absolutely. And, so and, representation. Yeah, exactly. The community feeling like they're represented somehow in mm. what the orchestra is doing, i.e. a composer from their community, is a crucial step mm -hmm. towards making the orchestra giving the orchestra a more broad appeal in our communities. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Same thing with female composers. Mm -hmm. you, you, you know the name Rick Robinson, the, 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 uh, the black bass player that played principal last year before last? Oh, yes. I do recall. I do recall when he, when he played. Okay. Well, here. He's, yes. he's moving to, to Ohio, I believe, maybe Cleveland from Detroit. And he has this group, uh, Quick Time Music. And it's a, it's a sort of a chamber ensemble. He writes music, and it's it's sort of classical music, uh, inf influenced by jazz, mm -hmm. or jazz music integrated with classical. Mm -hmm. All right, it's it's really good stuff. Mm -hmm. All right, um, he's a wonderful ambassador for music. He's written this piece called Essay Number Three on Sibelius and the, the okay. work that he quotes is Sibelius Symphony number no. three. Mm -hmm. One of these days I'm going to do it in Canton mm. where the first half is Sibelius Symphony number no. three. Oh, yeah. The second half would be um, his work and then maybe list piano concerto number no. two, something like that. Wonderful. That sounds like a great program. I just <laughs> I really got to know Sibelius III during the pandemic. I was loosely aware of it, but I got to know it very well during the pandemic. And it's I one of my favorite Sibelius symphonies. Absolutely, I would agree. Honestly, I would put it, I would put it third behind two and five for me. Okay. Now we're ranking. That's that's, that's fair. <laughs> there you go. So you just gave us one recommendation of something to listen to, but what what are other composers that maybe people don't know about, modern composers, uh, female composers, composers of oh, color geez. that our audience could look up and research and, and listen to, do you think? Well, one that I have to, I, I have to tell you about is Stephen Melillo. And you can, you can Google Stormworks and that's his his company, so to speak. We did several years ago a piece for the. Um, it was with Dancing Company. Wheels. Dancing Wheels, mm -hmm. yes. Yep. And it was his Symphony Number no. Four or Three. Four. Four, I think. <laughs> and I mean, it was a tremendous, tremendous experience mm -hmm. for me and for the orchestra. Mm -hmm. The audience. Now, it, some people didn't come because they, you know, they read about it in the paper. And I don't, you know, dancing wheels, you know, the regular ballet people with, with you know, people in wheelchairs. I, I don't think I want to see that, which is really unfortunate. Brings up another thing about concerts. People don't want to, do, they want happy music. Hmm. Happy, happy, happy. They don't want to be in touch with their inner feelings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't want to feel sad. I don't want to hear that sad music, you know? It's really a shame. Mm -hmm. It's really a shame. William Grant Steele. Mm -hmm. Okay. George Walker, mm -hmm. uh, who died in 2018. He wrote a wonderful, wonderful trombone concerto. Mm. Winton Marcellus. Oh, yes. Of course. Uh, Rick Robinson. Then when we get into the female composers, you want to get into those? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, all right. Okay. You have <laughs> Ellen Slovich. You have Joan Tower. Uh, Sylvie Bodorova, mm. who uh, our concertmaster and myself, we, we, we did in, in Canton, her Concerto of Flowers. And that was shortly before the pandemic, uh, last, yes. the fall of 2019. Mm -hmm. That's right. And a, a wonderful, wonderful work. Uh, Margaret Brower, who I believe still works in Cleveland. She's a wonderful composer. Victoria Bond, who's also a conductor. Uh, Lily Boulanger. You know, my bucket list is so full that I could probably live two, three lifetimes. 
and not get to the bottom. Mm. So much music, so little time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But the wonderful thing is that there is so much music out there Mm -hmm. that the, the profession of being a conductor, we always feel like for our whole careers that we're tackling new challenges all the time and knowing that we can never get to the end. It's exciting that we can go our whole careers and constantly learn. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's what makes being a conductor, being a musician so fascinating. You know, that'll, that'll keep us going for all of our lives. Mm-hmm. Instead of going to a nine-to-five job and, you know, punching tickets or, or whatever. When we talk about audiences being turned off to, possibly being turned off to classical music. Now, I'm sure I'm going to get in trouble for this one. <laughs> All you need to do is look at the effect the second Viennese school had on composers. Second Viennese school Webern, Schoenberg, mm-hmm. and Berg. Come to America. Not all of them were 12 tone, but you've got Sessions, Piston. A couple works are okay. Um, who's the composer that, that walked walked out of a performance that uh, Leonard Slatkin was doing with uh, Elliot Carter? Mm. Ah. Oh, I've played Elliot Carter. Out, con- con- conducting uh, conducting uh, his uh, con- concerto for two orchestras, I believe it was. And Leonard, as he often does, which is great, he, he talked about the piece to the audience. Elliot Carter walked out. During intermission, the critic caught up with him and said, "What? why did you walk out? My music doesn't need explaining. <laughs> And when, wow. I, when I heard that, I said, well, <laughs> his music doesn't need playing. <laughs> How oh, maniacal do you have to be uh, to, to say something like that? Uh, I, I you know, there are others that have just, I won't mention them because I don't want to be sued. I don't have the money. <laughs> Uh, that get it's it's mind music, it's head music. Give me something with some soul in it. Make me cry. Mm-hmm. Make yeah. me cry. Make me shed a tear or two. You know. Mm-hmm. And I found. About. I found ahead, personally the the most powerful twentieth and twenty first century music to me is music that grabs me by the heart and doesn't let go. Mm-hmm. And I think Absolutely. if we can program more of that, audiences can learn to embrace modern music. If we can get by the fact that, you know, we're not supposed to show emotion. There we go. Yeah. That's a big stickler. Yeah. Big stickler. Mm-hmm. So we have just a few more questions, but along the lines of the representation on orchestral programs, I wanted to talk a little bit about representation on the stage. And in the middle of the 20th century, for our listeners who aren't aware of this, orchestras began instituting a behind-the-screen audition process where the candidates who are auditioning for the orchestra were not seen by the committee until either the very final round or until they are selected. And this did a great deal in making the orchestras just about a 50-50 gender balance. However, orchestras, as far as race and ethnicity are concerned, are still primarily white and Asian, with members of the African-American and Latino communities being still very underrepresented on the stage. Now, I don't think the the behind-the-screen audition is going to go anywhere anytime soon. So what can we do as far as the pipeline of getting members of this community to the point that they will succeed and thrive 
at an orchestral audition and ultimately win those auditions? What can we do before they even get on the stage at the audition to encourage members of these communities to pursue this as a career? You know, first of all, there's, there, there, there's such a thing as, as tradition. I mean, the, the tradition of the household. Second of all, now we have public schools cutting back on music education. Okay. You, the only one, the, the only way that I know you can do it, and make a dent, is to have internship programs, and you have to look for people. You have to hunt them out, mm -hmm. like a headhunter. Right. You have to hunt for them. That's that's the only way I know. And would an internship program actually involve playing with the uh, either playing with the orchestra or playing with other musicians of the no, orchestra? No, well, yes. No, 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 no. The in internship, they would play the classical concerts and the pop with the orchestra. Okay, now, since it's an internship program, there probably would not be tenure. Mm -hmm. since, they, since they're there because of a great amount of talent, but they didn't audition. You know, if you don't audition, it's, it's hard to get a, you know, a contract. Absolutely. Um, Detroit had this with, uh, with their orchestra. There are fewer black and possibly Hispanic orchestra members than there than there were maybe 15, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Because 15, wow. 20 years ago, there was um, a push to include minorities. I don't see that much anymore. Yeah, I, I know that Atlanta actually has been trying to do this quite a yes, bit. That's correct, yes. As well as LA. Um, and to, I, I think, you know, the pipeline, it's... It's a long-term process, and I feel that, especially in America, it comes in bursts, and then it's like, oh, we tried once, and then it, it fades away, and then it comes in a burst again. But in reality, in order to make any significant amount of change at all within the orchestral community, it has to be a concerted, extended effort for a long period of time without getting rid of anything, which yeah, we're, unfortunately we're hasn't been something that is funded or... Uh, right. pursued in the realm of orchestral music you or we are looking at a hundred years yeah because the offspring of those players that would now play hopefully would pl at least play an instrument and be interested in classical music mm -hmm. that their father and mother played there has to be some sort of a tradition mm. And making it, making it easier, and trying to take down some of these boundaries that have existed for a very long time. And you, you know, you mentioned public schools and funding getting cut from music programs and putting funding back into music yeah. programs. And it's a, it's such a huge issue. And um, hopefully, we will have those people who can fund and support these endeavors, fund and support these endeavors, and we can see at least a, see families start to gain tradition sooner rather than later. You know? Right, right. Ab absolutely. I mean, at the, you know, the, at the same time, about, we got the trickle-down theory mm -hmm. in President Reagan. Which, that theory, you know, like a, a number of theories, it looks good on paper. What? Mm -hmm. Did anything trickle down? Maybe in people's bank accounts or something like that, but it, it didn't work. And at the same time that's going on, schools are cutting back on music because there's this big thing we have to keep up with the Japanese. It should be math. It should be science. You don't need music. Well, I beg to differ. Mm -hmm. I beg to differ. There have been multiple studies about the role of, of studying music and the, 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 role, the good role that it has with the other subjects. Mm -hmm. And not, not only does music complement the work and other studies, but and music, studying music not only gives 
people a knowledge of music and an exposure to it. But to hearken back to something we spoke about just a few minutes ago, it can make them, in the very least, less afraid to be more in touch with their emotions. One, one would hope so, yes. Very good point, Matthew. So as we wrap up here, are there any other thoughts that you want to share with us and our audience about how we can orchestrate change? The one thing you cannot do is give up. And the more people you talk to in the community, okay, the better chance you are of, of a light bulb going off. You know, you might not even be talking about that particular subject, but they'll say something and then a light bulb goes off. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You have to communicate and you have to reach out to people. It's the only way it's going to go. The days of audiences automatically just coming in, you know, and buying, buying season tickets are over. Season ticket sales are a thing of the past. I mean, it hasn't gone away, thankfully. But now what we're seeing is that there, there's more walk-up sales. People will choose to come to the concert they really want to hear. So the dilemma is, if you have all, you know, all this modern music, well, they're not going to want to come and hear it. However, I try to be a magician in, in, in a sense of the word, and I try to sneak it in. <laughs> and once I've snuck it in, um, then I'll, I'll talk about the piece, you know, to the audience. And, and it, it seems to help. There's one, there's one gentleman, well, wonderful guy. He said, I just don't get this modern music. I just, I just don't get it. Don't like it. And I did this piece. Oh, I wish I could remember what it was. It was about uh, being bitten by a snake. Oh, Stephen Montague, Snake Bite. That's the Snake Bite, okay. We, we did that uh, my first season. It was the spring of 2018 in March. Okay. It, yeah, I mean it's it's a it, it's a fun piece. It's a uh, actually it's a great piece I, as far as I'm concerned. I talked about it, and this gentleman that's always talking about hating modern music and everything. As soon as I turned around, he was the first one to stand up. Mm. It was wonderful. That made my night. Mm. That made my night. So there there are ways you you have you, you just have to keep plugging you know you just have to keep plugging it's like conducting students will say well i haven't you know i haven't got a job yet and i'll say well okay what are you going to do and i'll say well maybe i should get out of maybe i shouldn't be a conductor maybe i should go into something else I said, well, you know, what? why'd you go into conducting in the first place? Because it's my passion. I said, stay with your passion. If it doesn't work out, at least, at least in your lifetime, you went after what you wanted to do. I always wanted to write, write a book. You know, kind of an autobiography for my, especially for my grandkids mm -hmm. and my children, called "Why Me?" And why me? Why did I have polio? What did I do? Do you know to make God angry? And on the back, it says, "Because someone was watching over me." Mm. Part of me believes that very, very much. There's another part. That says, oh, don't be stupid. <laughs> that, that can't be true. But all the things that I've done in my life, I mean, the changes and everything. When I auditioned as assistant conductor of St. Louis, they offered me the job. At that time, I had finished my first year in Macomb. I was the fourth conductor in four years. I, I couldn't leave the end of August. 
and leave them in a lurch. So I called the executive director of St. Louis, and the first thing he said is, are you nuts? You're turning down the opportunity to work with the St. Louis Symphony to stay in Macomb, Illinois? I said, yeah, yes, sir, the, the timing just isn't right. Well, you better call um, uh, Maestro Suskin, Suskin because he's going to be really upset. He told me that you were a born conductor. I said, I'll, I'll be glad to call him. So I called Maestro Suskin. He didn't, he didn't go off the deep end like this executive director did. He, he was understanding. What he did after we hung up, I don't know. But he seemed to be very understanding and, and, and everything, and I thought it was done. And then in uh, sep September of the next year, they still hadn't found someone to be an assistant. And Susan Slaughter, the principal trumpet, called our horn teacher at Western and said, could you see if Zimmerman might be interested again? <laughs> and um, I said, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'm interested. So, so Pastorite calls me and he said, well, I understand uh, money's an issue. Well, I said, well, yes, in, in, in a certain way. I mean, it's a low salary, and I, I feel I need $20,000 to live in St. Louis and be the assistant conductor. Okay, well, when, you, when, when, you can, when can you come down and we can talk? I said, any time. So I went down two weekends from the phone call. We went out to dinner. We went to a concert. Slatin was doing um, The Planets, which I really wanted to see and hear. And um, executive director said during intermission, well, let's go up to my office and talk. <laughs> I was like, not now. Not, not when the music's going on. So we go up in the office. And we talked through a few things. And he said, well, how long is it going to take you for, for you to make up your mind this time? Because I think I thought about it for a week. <laughs> I said, uh, one week. And he gives me this look. If, if, if <laughs> beggars could come out of his eyes, they, they would have. One week. And he said, okay. I said, but I have a favor to ask. He said, what is it? I said, is it all right if we go backstage before the concert's over so that I can watch the orchestra and see the orchestra come off stage and go down to the dressing rooms? And he looked at me and he said, why? <laughs> why would you want to do that? I said, it doesn't matter. I just, I just need to do that. So we went downstairs. We went behind, you know, this, the stage, uh, the entrance to the pro stage proper. The orchestra came out. They were seemed happy. They were talking with everyone, you know, with one another. They were smiling. The next day, I called him, and I said, I'll take the job. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that I went to a summer conducting camp for two years. And the orchestra was a chamber orchestra. And, well, half the orchestra hated the music director, and the other half didn't care. They came, they took out their instruments two minutes before the rehearsal. They played like this. At the end, put their instruments back, and they left. They didn't talk to one another. It was like everyone, you know, disliked or hated one another. I didn't want to work in that, that atmosphere. I still don't. Mm -hmm. You know, orchestras can, I also tell people, orchestras can bring a conductor down, just like a conductor can bring an orchestra down. You don't want, I got great advice from Carl Schiebler, who used to be personal manager of the New York Phil. He was angry that I took North Carolina and not the Florida Symphony. I was offered both in the same year. The reason I took North Carolina is that Florida Orchestra wanted me to give up Canton the second year. And I said, no, mm -hmm. I'm not going to give up an orchestra that's better. 
And I told but the, the the president of the board, I said, why, why do I have to be in residence all the time? Well, in case we have to have a meeting. <laughs> in my own diplomatic way, I said, well, there's such a thing as a telephone. <laughs> you know, I, so I signed with North Carolina. I'm, I'm glad I did. Um, but I tell people, don't surround yourself with people at a lower level than you are, meaning talent, giftedness, musicality, all right, unless it's a student, something like that, or a board member that, that uh, doesn't want to hear modern music. Surround yourself with people that will bring you up to their level. No, I think it, I think it makes all the difference in the world. The other thing I tell students: don't don't try to make everyone like you. But anyway, I mean, it's listen. You, you, as far as conducting goes, I must say, when it works, there's nothing better. When I can stand up there, there, there have been instances when I've stopped conducting. I put my arms down and I just listen. Honestly, I don't, I don't conduct, and I just I just stand there. It's the most wonderful times of my life, in my career in uh, making music. When I can forget what I'm doing, you know, at, at the present, be, be, being very conscious of it, when I can forget what I'm doing, then I'm in the zone. And that zone is a wonderful place to be. <laughs> Well, Maestro Zimmerman, it has been an absolute joy to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. you want another so, raise? Or so <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. Maestro Gerhard Zimmerman, our beloved music director of 40 years here at the Canton Symphony, also former music director of the North Carolina Symphony and professor of conducting and Director of Orchestras at the University of Texas at Austin. The Vendies bring their unique blend of pop, jazz, and rock to the Canton Palace Theater stage on February 27th at 7.30 p.m. during the local live concert series. Tickets are available for a socially distanced in-person experience or a live streaming access of the concert from the comfort of your own couch. Don't miss the Vendies live from the Canton Palace Theater on February 27th. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer is Nathan Maslick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.